I am excited about Advent season. For those of you who are new around here uh, and you're not familiar with Advent, I didn't grow up celebrating Advent. Actually, when I came to Christ, I found myself during Christmas time being caught up in a lot of good things, gift giving and festivities and parties and good food and family. But I remember feeling this sense of emptiness by the time all the wrapping paper was everywhere and cleaned up and by the time all the food was finished and the, the, the meetings with families were over, I remember finding myself feeling empty, like, is this what Christmas is about as a believer? Now, I get it as an unbeliever, right? Um, not not just totally missing the mark, totally missing the meaning, the reason of the season, but as a believer, I just sense that there's something more that God has for me during this season. And then when my wife and I uh, got married, we, we, we have made it our, we have resolved to allow this season to be Christ-centered. We've, we have resolved to make room in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds for the person of Jesus. It's, 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 um, it's a paradox. It's, it's, there's irony in the reality that this season that we celebrate the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, how we can oftentimes have less room in our lives for him by the good things that, that, that seem to eclipse his place in our hearts and our minds during this season. Now, we're not in the scripture, we're not commanded anywhere to observe Advent or to observe Christmas. So there's freedom. It's not an obligation for Christians to celebrate Christmas or celebrate Advent. But I have seen this as an opportunity, as an opportunity to intensify my focus on Jesus, an opportunity to lead and disciple my children with the, the, the rhythms, the traditions that we, that we establish and build within our family to talk about the person of Christ, to put the spotlight on the person of Christ. And so um, during this time of year, while this may be the most wonderful time of the year for many, it's also one of the most difficult times of the year for, for others. And sometimes it's mixed, right? There's joy and there's sadness combined. Some common emotions that many feel during this season are disappointment sadness and stress. And I think it's interesting that historically the church has highlighted four themes during the Advent season, hope, peace, joy, and love. And I think that those themes counter, they counter some of those negative feelings and experiences that we have during this season, hope, peace, joy, and love, and they are gifts that Jesus brought along with his first advent. He came to bring rescue. During the advent season, we remember that Christ has come. The word advent comes from the Latin word, which uh, adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so during this time, the church historically has reflected upon the coming or the arrival of Jesus into this world. We think about who Jesus is during this time. We think about what he accomplished during this time. We think about not only the first advent, but we think about the second advent 
during this time. And, and hope, joy, and peace, and love are gifts that accompany the coming of Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We celebrate Jesus during this time of the year. And of course, as Christians, we ought to celebrate Jesus in every season of the year. We sang this morning, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Charles Wesley, who wrote this hymn, did an excellent job capturing the heart of Advent. And, and in the first verse, he captures the heart of the first coming and the longing that the people of God had for Jesus, the Messiah, to come into this world and bring the rescue that the prophets talked about that the Messiah would one day bring. And then in verse 2, he goes on and he says, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. As I read these verses, I think about the space that we're in. And the already not yet, as theologians call it. The king has come. And he brought his reign into the lives of people in this world in the first advent but he's coming back he accomplished what he came to do the first time sufficiently and living his life perfectly sinlessly going about doing good healing those who were oppressed bringing the kingdom of god declaring the kingdom of god displaying the kingdom of god so that we might see what god is like and what his kingdom is like and what it means to be his people a part of his kingdom and, and, and we live in this space where the king has come. He has brought rescue to us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. And we rejoice in that. But there's still some things that just aren't right in the world. And we feel it. As Andrew Peterson wrote in his song, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you can see all things made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new, new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be a light within our midst? It is. This also captures the spirit of Advent in which we celebrate, in which we enter into the space of waiting. Just like the Israelites did for hundreds of years, waiting for the promised Messiah, going through suffering, going through difficulty, waiting for God to come and bring the promised rescue that he would bring. Perhaps some of you enjoy this time of year thoroughly, and it's the most wonderful time of the year for you. And perhaps some of you also feel the deep sadness and the pain of broken relationships, of things not being as you think they ought to be or as God designed them to be in your life. This is a space to wait for God, to bring our pain to God, 
to bring our prayers to God, to bring our hearts before God and wait on him. There were two godly saints in, the, in, in Luke chapter 2 who at the very end of their lives got to see the promised Messiah right before their eyes, Simeon and Anna, some of Israel's best in that day. And they, they were godly, there was a godly man and a godly woman. Anna was a prophetess. And she spent time fasting and praying in the temple. And she was looking and waiting for Messiah to come. Simeon was a devout, just man who had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he died. And, and, and Mary and Joseph bring in baby boy Jesus. Baby, the promised son, the Messiah, God in the flesh, they bring him in to present him as the law uh, uh, prescribed. And they, they bring him in and Simeon sees him and he prophesies and he holds him in his arms and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Can you imagine this holy moment when Simeon was holding the God-man, the baby God wrapped up in flesh and he's looking at the Messiah and he's praising God and he prophesies over him and, and Anna she gives thanks that she gives thanks to God and she just went about speaking telling everyone of those who were waiting for Israel's consolation to come she testified of it and so I wanted to preach on that passage this morning um, I did so about seven years ago, the first Advent that we celebrated together as a church. But I ended up landing on James chapter 5, which isn't an explicit theme of hope. It's a theme of patience that is connected to hope. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. We're going to talk about patience and patiently waiting in hope, specifically for the coming of the Lord, for things to be made right, for the kingdom to come in all its fullness. So fathers, we open up your word. Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? Would you open the eyes of our heart to see the hope of your calling and the riches of your glorious inheritance that is in the saints and the power that works towards us who believe. God, would you, the God of hope, pierce through the dark clouds of despair and drive them away in the lives of your people here this morning and let hope arise in our hearts. Let peace and joy abound. Let love abound in our lives as we get a glimpse of you and teach us the way of patience in Jesus' name. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets 
who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all God's people said, amen. So here's our big idea this morning. God calls his people to wait patiently and hope for the return of Christ by learning from examples of patience. We have examples in scripture and all of us, I'm sure, have some examples in our own lives of people who have demonstrated patience, who have influenced our lives or perhaps impatience as well. And so we see in this text, God calls his people to patience. This is a command. This is an imperative. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Now, some of the backdrop of, of the book of James and, and who James was writing to was he, was he was addressing, one of the issues that he was addressing was this issue of the rich oppressing the poor. If you just read the verses right before this in James chapter 5, this is a theme that's repeated in James. James has some of the harshest words for the wealthy who oppress the poor. And this, is the, this has been a pattern throughout history. Those with much can oppress those who have little. They can use their power to push down others and work their way up the ladder and get much in this life. And so James confronts that issue of wickedness and injustice amongst the, the wealthy. He, he addresses in James chapter 2, he addresses favoritism towards those who have much when they come into the church. And how we're not to treat them differently than we treat the poor brother or sister who comes into the church. We're, we're to have a, a love that is consistent and a treatment that is fair and, and just towards one another without partiality. And so James addresses this, and he tells the poor Christians who were experiencing injustice, they were experiencing persecution, they were experiencing hardship. He tells them to be patient. Be patient. And notice what he does. He directs them to the coming of the Lord. He directs them to the second advent when Jesus will come back, when he will right the wrongs, when we will all give an account before him for our actions, both good and evil. And, and the Bible has, has often, when, when the Bible speaks of the second coming and, and, and Jesus coming back, it often has a moral imperative connected to it. There's this promise, he's coming back. And there is a way that the people of God should live in light of his coming back. This is why I think it's good for us to celebrate Advent and reflect on his coming the first time and reflect on his second coming. And the specific moral obligation here, the moral imperative, the way that we are to live in light of Jesus coming back and in light of hardships that we're enduring, that we're facing, is we are to be patient. Aren't we just a patient culture in America? We're, we're just the most patient people, most patient generation ever. I say that sarcastically, obviously. So James calls us to be patient in hope, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus, looking for him to come back. Martin Luther said this. He said, I have two days on my calendar, today 
in that day. Today and that day, okay? We, we need to make the most of the time we've been given today. We can't change what happened yesterday. It's already passed. So don't let the regret and the guilt and the shame and the sorrow of yesterday hold you back from being in the present and living for the will of God and loving God and loving others today, doing the will of God while you're here. But also we are to live in light of that day, the day that is approaching when Christ will return. You see, the church has lived with this eager expectation that Jesus is going to come back. Okay? And we don't know exactly when. Jesus said no one knows the exact time or the hour. But when the, when the Bible calls us to reflect on this, it calls us to live in such a way that he could come back today. Are we living like that? Are we living with an expectation and a consecration, a holiness, a devotion, a patience that Jesus is coming back soon? James gives us a couple examples to look at of patience here. The first one is the farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. One theologian, Peter David, says that farmers, of course, have, have to have this virtue in Israel. They waited for the autumn rains before planting, and then they had to wait and hope that the spring rains would come and bring grain to maturity before the harvest. Just think about farmers for a second there, because this is what James points us to. He gives us examples to learn from patience. He gives us illustrations to learn from of patience for us we just for, if we want food we just go to you know the fast foods we go to chick-fil-a right unless it's sunday right then you maybe go to wendy's or you go to McAllister, or you go somewhere else right we can get food like that and in the ancient world it, it didn't we didn't they didn't have that convenience to where they can instantly get what they wanted they had to wait there was a process and a part of that process was the farming that took place we still have farmers today of course but farmers are examples of patience. They have to wait for the rain. They have to wait for the crop to grow up. And while they do so, they're still working. They're still cultivating the ground. They're not just passively waiting. Make sure we, you, don't, you don't confuse patience and waiting on God for passivity. Because patience, we are, are in hope and patience and waiting patiently on God is, is to be something that's active for the people of God, like a, a good waiter or wait, waitress at a restaurant, all right? If you, if you experience good service at a restaurant with, with a waiter or a waitress, they are eager and ready and joyful and, and ready to, to step in and serve and help. So, so James points us to the farmer. He says, look at the farmer. They, they are to do, the farmer's are to do their work, they're, they're, they're to fulfill their responsibility, but then they are to wait for God ultimately to give the rain, to send the rain so that the ground would produce crops. I've already alluded to this, but we have a problem of impatience. I looked up in the Oxford Dictionary, what is impatience? Impatience is the feeling of being annoyed by somebody or something, especially because you have to wait for a long time. Can anybody resonate with that? 
impatience. It's a problem. It's a problem in our fast food culture, in our instant Instacart culture, in our Amazon culture. If you want something today, you can order it right now while I'm preaching, and you may get it by this afternoon from Amazon. Or if you want a book, you can click on it and get the Kindle version of it right now, instantly. Or if you want to watch a movie, you can stream it immediately. We live in a culture where we get what we want when we want it so frequently. And so this doesn't help us to develop patience. Actually, it caters to our impatience. And it makes us in some ways spoiled if we let it. So impatience is a character flaw that destroys relationships. Impatience is, is manifested by our anger, our frustration towards others. Impatience cannot see beyond the immediate. Impatience is demanding. Its motto is now. Impatience characterizes the person who sees themselves in charge. They're king, they're God, they're in charge, and I want it now. That's the, that's the function of impatience. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. Um, N.T. Wright says that a, a hasty, impatient spirit is another form of pride of the human arrogance that imagines that it knows better than God. Now, we have examples of patience that are given to us in this text and we also have patient, uh, examples of impatience that we can all think of. And I have four children, and I could use one of them in my illustration, but I'm not going to. For this, I'm going to use myself. And I remember when I was a child, and I was maybe eight or nine or ten, came home from school to the apartment. Mom wasn't there. Nobody was there. The door was locked. I didn't have a key. And I was impatient. I got frustrated. You know what I did? I took my fist and I punched the window, broke the window. And then I looked at my hand and I was bloody all over. I'm like, oh man, what do I do now? I'm going to die. Right? And so that's just an example. There are many that I could point to in my childhood, many examples of impatience. Many. And there was a significant change when I came to Jesus between how impatient I was before Christ and, and how I grew in patience. But I, I wish that I wouldn't have to go so far, or I wish that I would have to go so far back to give an example of impatience. Because I, I only have to go back to this week. I only have to go back to this week to think about a moment when I was impatient with my family. It just took the right combination of running a little bit late having four children in the car and there being an expression of displeasure and then traffic, right? Right in the midst of traffic and we're late and it's gonna take an hour to get somewhere that should only taken 40 minutes. And I express some impatience in that moment. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to experience impatience with your children. You get that pouty face you get that stubborn will. You get that, that rebellion to your instructions and just enough times with a bad attitude. And then all of a sudden, you're like wondering what happened to my patience with the kids. Or you're stuck in traffic like me. This past week, 
where we're on I-30, and it's not moving. It's dark, and the lights are lit. We just see traffic lights, and it's like, how long is this going to take, right? Driving has a great way to develop patience in us and reveal our lack of patience, does it not? I mean, I've had too many times where I was speeding on the way, running behind, and I speed up, and then, you know, I, I pass somebody up. I'm like, man, why are you driving so slow? You know, I get ahead of them, and then I, we come to a red light, and then we're both there. I didn't make any progress, and I'm looking at the person next to me and thinking, gosh, that was foolish. I just need to slow down. Perhaps you can relate to me. God calls us to be a patient people, and God calls us to be patient with others. See, we're, we're not only to be patient in our circumstances, we're to be patient with other people who are in process. Other people who, just like you, need someone to be patient with them and work with them patiently so that they can become all that God's created them to be. James hints at this at, in, in chapter uh, 5, verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why would James mention grumbling right here next to patience? Anybody got an idea? Perhaps it's because when we get impatient, our tendency is to grumble and complain, and, and oftentimes it can be directed towards those people who are closest to us as if they are our greatest problem, as if they are the enemy, all right? They're not the enemy, all right? We have an enemy. It's the devil, the flesh, the world's evil system, okay? Those sitting next to you are not the enemy, and so there's this tendency that we have to, to grumble towards, complain towards those who have been given to us as gifts as, as in relationships. You see, this was the tendency for the early church. And that's why James was writing this. It wasn't just difficult circumstances, outward circumstances that were trying to them. It was also people on the inside that were annoying to them. That can cause grumbling and complaining. The Israelites have this tendency. We see the Israelites in the wilderness just going in circles. They were, they, they, they were given the same test over and over. And they failed it over and over for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness. And they grumbled and complained. And they didn't believe God. And they accused God of bringing them into the wilderness. Because he hated them. And he wanted to destroy them. It was such a skewed view of God that they begin to develop. And I think complaining and grumbling is birthed out of a skewed view of God and a skewed view of those who have been made in the image of God around us, who have been given to us as gifts. Notice what, what James gives as a motivation not to grumble. Now, he's already given the motivation that Jesus is coming back. That should be enough, right? He's coming back. That should be a positive motivation for us. He's going to make things right. He's going to do something about these things that are not right in the world, not right in my life. He's coming back. But here in verse 9, he gives the sobering motivation, the sobering reminder that the judge is standing at the door. Okay? 
Jesus will judge, he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead. In our lives, we'll, we will have to give an account. Our works will be judged according to 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is to be a holy motivation for us as we think about how we treat those around us, as we think about how we live in this world. Of course, Christ has taken our condemnation and he has been judged in our place so that we can be forgiven and declared righteous and so that we can live in righteousness, so that we can live in patience, so that we can live in love. The theologian Donald Berwick says this about this, this uh, command not to grumble towards one another. He says, what is forbidden is not loud and bitter denunciation of others, but the expressed feeling of bitterness and the smothered resentment that may express itself in a groan or a sigh. Ugh. That what's brewing underneath towards our brothers or our sisters. You know, it's not just what comes out of our mouth and it's not just our actions. God looks at our hearts and we got to address sin at the heart level, not at, at the, the motive level, not just at, with the behavior, not just with just holding your, your lips. Right now, James does have a lot to say about the tongue and what we say and what we do with our tongue, all right? But, but here, there, there's more of this, this underlining, this groaning or grumbling towards others, this disposition, this attitude. And when we express it, though we may find, find momentary relief when we complain and we grumble, it actually doesn't help the circumstance. Have you ever noticed that? It actually doesn't help you. It actually doesn't help them. It just makes matters worse. It just damages the, damages the relationship all the more. And so we got to learn to bring those things to the Lord in prayer. As the psalmist said, I pour out my complaint to you. Right? we got to learn how to lament, biblically weep and grieve over sin and the brokenness while rejoicing. Be sorrowful yet rejoicing, as Paul talked about, so that we can experience some wholeness. Okay, so what is patience? In the Oxford Dictionary, the English Dictionary, I think these are helpful. If you, sometimes if you uh, just look at the English Dictionary, you can be helped by uh, trying to understand a, a concept here. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Patience is described as long-suffering or suffering long under difficult circumstances. Patience is forbearing with others. Patience is being slow to anger, quick to listen, and slow to speak, as James has described in chapter 1. Patience is, is not demanding that people or circumstances change immediately. Okay? We have a tendency... To, to demand that people or circumstances change now. You need to change now. I'll accept you when you change. And if you change now, I'll accept you. All right? Those of us who are married know that when we got married, we had to accept our spouse as they were with all the rough edges and all the flaws that, that, they, that, that you brought into the marriage covenant relationship. Right? And so we are to accept one another and love one another as we are and be patient and forbear with one another as we live together with all our little quirks. By the way, how is patience developed according to James? I think most of us know this. Some people say don't pray for patience because God will give it to you and he'll, he'll give it to you in the form of trials. James chapter 1. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. Patience. So James gives this perspective to the people of God who are going through difficulty that God is at work in your difficult circumstances and see it. You need to have that perspective. And when you're going through trials, when you're going through difficult times, trials and temptations, it's an opportunity for you to develop in godly character, namely the character of patience. God is patient. And when we're going through those trials, we get this opportunity to see just how patient or impatient we are. And God's committed to shaping us and forming us into the image of his son. He's committed to that. And he knows how patient or impatient we are. He's not surprised by it. You might be, your spouse might be, your kids might be. God already knows and he accepts us and he loves us as we are and he's committed to, 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 to fulfilling his good plans for us to finishing what he started in us Douglas Moo in describing the two Greek words that are used here in this passage one that's translated patience the other uh, steadfastness actually the King James translates both of these as patience um, but he says the two root words are often distinguished usually being used to indicate long suffering loving attitude we are to have towards others while the other denotes the strong determined attitude with which we are to face difficult circumstances and so there are a couple of examples that James calls us to learn from in verse 10 he says as example as an example of suffering and patience brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Uh, let's see here. Consider these three examples. Now, he's already given the illustration of a farmer. And now he says, look at the prophets. Learn from these godly uh, messengers, representatives for, for, for God who in the Old Testament, they spoke God's words, and when they delivered the mail, when they delivered the message, oftentimes the people didn't like it, and they got persecuted for it. They got killed for it. They got slandered for it. They got cut off. They got canceled for it. They got treated terribly, and I'm just going to highlight two examples of the prophets. One is Isaiah, who experienced hardship. And here, here's an expression of his hope and him waiting patiently in Isaiah 8, 17. By the way, he has some of the best um, uh, prophecies concerning the Messiah, some of the, the, the strongest prophecies concerning Jesus who would come as the Messiah, some of our favorite Christmas passages that we read this time of year. He says this, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope See, the prophets waited patiently in hope. They suffered persecution. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, went through so much, and he saw so much brokenness, so many things that broke his heart that, that the people of God went through because of their own rejection of God. They rejected God as the fountain of living waters, and they, they, they tried to make cisterns for themselves that wouldn't hold water, Jeremiah 1 says. They, they made substitutes for God in their lives. And Jeremiah's heart broke for them. 
and, and he also wrote the book of Lamentations, which is just a, a number, just grief expressed. And it is, very, it is a very heavy book. But in the midst of this grief and this lament, he has glimmers of hope that arise. And, and, and one of, one of the, the most favorite passages, probably the most favorite passage in Lamentations, he says this, I, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy has never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Gosh, what a lifeline these words have been for the people of God throughout history. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. He says, the Lord is my portion. My soul says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. And so we have these examples in the prophets of patience, those who were like mailman, they delivered the message of God to the people of God and were oftentimes persecuted for it. Jesus himself experienced this when he brought God's message, God's word. And then we see a, another great example here is Job. And James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, if you're going through a difficult time in this season of your life, you can look to Job as somebody who has really gone through some of the worst things. I don't know anybody who has suffered more than this guy. Maybe Jesus, right, as the ultimate sufferer of injustice and suffering. But Job is an example, too, that helps us wrestle with these realities of suffering and God's sovereignty and living in a fallen, broken world where there's cancer, where there's war, where there's divorce, where there's injustice, sickness, and terrible things that happen in this world. And Job wrestled through his own circumstances. He lost his family, his children. He lost all his wealth. He had so much that was taken from him immediately. And even his own wife at one point says, curse God and die. Just give up, Job. Right? This guy had it bad. He went through some really tough times. And then he had some friends that had some advice for him. Right? They, they might have been helpful for a little bit, but then they started sharing what they thought, and it wasn't consistent with what God thought and what God says. And in the midst of Job, in the midst of the conversations, in, in the midst of the processing, Job makes this statement, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job obviously didn't go through his suffering perfectly, but he was a righteous man. And everything that he experienced, God allowed it. God permitted Satan to do what he did. But notice what James says about Job's story. Because if you read the book of Job, new Christians call it Job, right? I'm reading the book of Job and I don't understand this. I need a job and I, this isn't encouraging me, right? If you read the book of Job and you 
and you stop halfway, you might not conclude what James concludes about Job's story and the message in, in Job's story. You might say, God, why'd you let this happen? What's going on? Where are you? Right? I, I read through a book last week, um, shared this with community group about ingratitude, gratitude, and uh, um, uh, it, Sam Crabtree, he says, this, he says, ingratitude prejudges God before the end of the story. Ingratitude prejudges God, prejudges God before the end of the story is revealed, right? And there's this tendency that we have when we look at our own lives or we look at the lives of others to prejudge God and question the goodness of God and challenge the goodness of God. Now we need to be able to express our lament, express our pain and pour out our complaint to God. But we also, when we're going through the most difficult times, our hearts need to be anchored in the reality of who God is. And in the book of Job, we learn that God is sovereign over human suffering and that God is compassionate and merciful, as James says. He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, at the end of Job's story, we see God restoring to him what he had lost. Now, it doesn't mean the pro there was still pain, I'm sure. You can imagine there was still pain. There were scars. But, but God had restored and God had shown himself as good, as compassionate, as merciful. And if you're going through a difficult time, I exhort you to cling to those truths about who God is. God is sovereign and God is good and gracious and compassionate. And God is slow to anger. He's patient. And that's another example that I want to look at. We got the prophets, we got the farmer example, we got Job's example of patience, but I don't think we can get any better than looking at God himself as the ultimate example of patience. Peter describes it, and he says this, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count as slowness, but he is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, some have looked at the promise of Jesus' return and Jesus not coming back already when the church has expected him to come back. Some have looked at it as like they've, they've scoffed and, and, you know, I've said, well, where, where's this promise? Where, where's the fulfillment? Where's the Messiah? Where's, where's the restoration of all things? And Peter says, you know what? It's really God's patience that he hasn't come back yet. Because if he does, there are going to be lots of people that are going to perish. And he's giving people time to repent, to turn to him. God is, he, he, he is patient with sinners like you and me. Aren't you glad that he didn't come back before you gave your life to Christ, became a Christian? I, I know I am. I'm glad he didn't come back before December 12th, 1998. All right? And, and, and so in, in Romans 15, verse 5, Paul calls God the God of all patience. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, may the God of all patience. He, he exemplifies patience. He's, he's the source of it. But, but also he, the New Living, translates it, New Living Translation translates it as he gives patience. May God who gives patience and encouragement help you to live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. So God the Father, our Father is patient. 
you had an impatient father, there is healing in reflecting on the reality that our Heavenly Father is patient with us. He works with us. He's committed to helping us. Um, F.B. Myers says, Don't judge the Lord by his unfinished work. Be patient till he unveils the perfect pattern in glory. Await the end of the work. Okay? I love the song, He is Sovereign Over Us, and there's a line in there that says, You are working in our waiting. You are working, you are working in our waiting. Right? God is working in the waiting. There's a process. And sometimes we get so focused on our circumstance. We get so focused on what's happening to us that we miss what God is doing in us. And James directs us to that, to give our attention to that. What is God doing in you? He's shaping you. He's forming you. He's developing you. He's not trying to destroy you. He's not testing you so that you'll be destroyed. He's testing you so that you'd be developed shaped into the man and the woman he's called you to be and sometimes we need painful circumstances to do that shaping in our lives some of us don't ever change until we feel a sting of some poor choices right and God uses that it's called discipline or it's called trials that he leads us through A.W. Pink in his book um, The Attributes of God says that divine patience as that is is that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long and punishing them. You know, who's also patient is our Savior, our Lord Jesus. Jesus is described by Peter in 1 Peter 2 as, um, after Peter says, you know, if you've, been, if you've suffered unjustly and you've endured it patiently, then you have reward. That's good. But if you're doing evil and you, and you, and you suffer, that's, that, there's no reward in that. And he says, he points to Jesus' example. He says, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he, reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus experienced the most difficult, crushing circumstances. The, the most difficult experience at, at, when he went to the cross, he, before as he prayed in the garden, his soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. And he began to sweat drops of blood. The, the pressure was not just external, but it was internal. As he began to, to bear the weight of the sins of the world. And he was on that cross and he, and he prayed from Psalm 22, he took the words from David in Psalm 22 and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he expressed the pain and the burden that he felt in that moment. And he went through that for you and me. He endured suffering patiently for us. He endured suffering patiently from the Romans, from the Jewish leaders. He put up with those disciples who acted like knuckleheads for three years. They were arguing and complaining about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They just seemed so slow to get the message that Jesus was trying to teach them, the best teacher ever. They're complaining and arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Read Luke 9. You see three instances 
where they're being immature knuckleheads. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Then they're like, hey, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons, and we told them to stop because they, they weren't with us. And Jesus says, hey, don't stop them, right? Like, they're doing a good thing. Don't stop them from doing that, right? And then they get upset at the Samaritans and they're because the Samaritans rejected them, and they're like, Jesus, hey, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Because we can do it. We'll do it right now. You just let us know. We'll call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans. We didn't like them anyways. Let's get them, right? And Jesus rebukes them. If you haven't seen The Chosen, The Chosen does a great job, by the way, in, in illustrating what it could have been like as Jesus was patiently interacting with the disciples in their immaturity, in their impatience. He was patient with them. They were, they were slow to believe, slow at heart to believe, Luke 24. You know, and after they'd seen so much and Jesus taught them so well, they just seemed not to get it as, as quick as you would think they would get it. And the reality is you and me are often like that as well. And Jesus is patient with us. He can sympathize with us. He bears with us. He is committed to shaping us into who he's called us to be, to developing us into the men and women that he has called us to be. And so here are a couple points of application. First of all, reflect on examples of patience that you have in your life. And we've, uh, James gives us a couple different, the farmer, the prophets, Job. I brought up other, other verses, God himself, the father, Jesus himself as the ultimate, right? God and Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit. Patience is a fruit of the spirit. As we follow the spirit, we keep in step with the spirit, Patience is something that the Spirit gives us in our lives and produces in our lives. We're, we're commanded to be patient, and yet God supplies us with it. He's working in us, bringing that fruit in our lives as we abide in Him, as we walk with Him. And so we're to reflect on those examples. Who in your life that you know around you, in your family or in church, or who, who reflects this patience that you want to develop more in your own life? Learn from those examples. Reflect on those examples. Renew your perspective with hope. One of the things that helps us be patient is to, to be patient with hope. Because you, you see that there's it's not always going to be like this. The story's not over. As the, 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 the song Shane and Shane uh, wrote, um, I'm, I'm fighting a battle you've already won. And, and in the bridge of that song, it says, I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. Right? He goes into declaring that, that I know how it's going to end. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. And as Christians, we know the end of the story. We have this perspective of hope. Christ will return. He's going to make all things new. He will judge the living and the dead and those who persist in wickedness and injustice and oppress and hurt people and murder people and abuse people. God's going to deal with them. The judge is coming. He's going to bring us with him. He's going to rescue us. And then the, the, other, the other thing is redeem the time. While you're waiting, you know, I found it helpful to like, not be not be idle waiting for god patiently doesn't mean we're to be passive or idle okay when you're when you're now we we have opportunity 
to redeem the time in a number of different ways. I mean, when you're at the grocery store or when you're in a line at the, um, the driver's license place, the, the DMV, uh, and you're waiting in line, you know, there's a, there's a number of ways you can redeem the time. You can pray, you can pull out your smartphone and meditate on the scripture or read a book on your phone or listen to it or listen to some worship music, or you can witness to the person next to you, tell them about Jesus, right? You can send an email <laughs> or a text message to encourage somebody right there. Where, there's a number of ways that we can redeem the time while we're waiting. When you're stuck in traffic, don't text and drive. All right, uh, But there's a, there's a number of ways that you and I can redeem the time. And I think that helps us when we don't just give in to idleness and passivity and just like, oh, this is terrible. Or we may just need to embrace some quietness for our soul and communion with God while we're kind of stuck where we feel stuck. Right? And, and, and we're in a circumstance where we have to wait. Also, we're to relinquish control. I love how James says it. He says, uh, let patience have its perfect work in you, right? There's this element of like surrender. Like I'm not in control. I thought I was, or I had this sense that I was, that things were in my control. But ultimately, God, you're in control and I surrender my plans to you. I can't change. I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. I'll make plans and I'll do my best to make them happen. But ultimately, God, you're in control. And so we need to relinquish our sense of control. We're not God. Oftentimes we need to remain in the fire until God finishes doing the shaping that he's doing. My wife and I made, a, made this hearty quiche casserole for the men's breakfast yesterday morning. Uh, usually my wife makes it, and then we did it together this time, right? Um, and about 35 minutes, you got to let it cook. And after 35 minutes, it wasn't ready. Thankfully, she wanted to try some before I, t I took it out the door. And she found out that it wasn't finished, right? There were still some runny eggs in there. And I, I would had I been hasty to just get out the door with that dish, us guys would have been eating some uncooked eggs. And we don't have an oven, oven here to cook, and we would have missed out. We would have just did waffles, right? Um, and so we need, to, we need to let God do what he's doing in the furnace and the fire of the trials that we're walking in. He's shaping us. He's forming us. He's maturing us. And we just, we, we tend to want to get out of that fire too quick. We're, we move to the next job. We move locations. We, we cut off relationships that, that maybe God wants us to stay in and, and be patient and loving towards those brothers or sisters, those people that he's placed us around. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 tell us that, that because we're chosen by God and we're beloved, we're to put on tender mercies and compassion, humility, patience, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. So just think about how Jesus has treated you when you've been selfish or impatient or immature. And we're to give that same love and patience and that same grace to others as Christ has given to us. We're to rely on God in prayer. James 5 tells us that we're to, 1, 5, it says that to, when, you're, when you're in those trials and you're going through difficult times, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. He'll give you a perspective that's higher than your own so that you can operate from rather than leaning on your own understanding. And remember that others are in process too. Others are in process. We're all in process. I found a, a helpful 
little um, little quote here, long quote, longer quote, from a, a little book by Ed Welch called A Small Book with a Big Problem, Meditations on Anger, Patience, and Peace. And he says this, he says, you might be impatient, or you might be patient if a child spills her cup of milk, but it isn't easy. In order to be patient, you must first know at least two things. In order to be patient, you must know at least two things. First, you must know something about yourself that you have all kinds of desires. One of them is, I want an easy life. When this desire is thwarted, you will likely pounce on the offender. Second, to be patient, you must also know something about the child. She didn't do this in order to make your life miserable. It was an accident. She is not, she is not the same as you. You might have been able to maneuver through breakfast without spilling anything, but your hand, but your hand-eye coordination is better than hers. To be patient, you must remember your child is not you. You need to remember this about other people too. You might have skills and abilities that the other people in your life do not possess. Is that helpful? It's helpful to me. That is a helpful perspective right there. And so let, let's close in prayer. Kevin, team, if y'all want to come on up. I have a, three verses. If y'all would stand with me, if we can go back to the PowerPoint there. I have three verses I want us to pray. And can we read these together as a prayer over our church? Starting in Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Second Thessalonians. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work 